Good to see you. Good morning to all you folks who are watching at home this morning in your pajamas, in bed, on time change weekend. We're glad you're with us today. Good to see everybody. If you've got a Bible, I want you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and find the 19th chapter. The Gospel of Matthew, find the 19th chapter. Just hold that there for a moment. I want to talk to you about something real quickly. We have four core strategies for living out the vision and the mission of our church. Uh, One of those strategies is what we simply call spiritual influence, and spiritual influence happens when we embrace the opportunity in our lives to identify someone in the network of our life that is a long way from God, and then we commit to doing three things. Number one, developing a friendship with them. Number two, discovering their story. And then number three, discerning next steps, which is just to say, praying that God would guide and direct us on how we can share spiritual influence with them. It might be us sharing a personal testimony, talking to them specifically about Jesus, bringing them to church with us. It could be a number of different things. We laid all this out last fall in a special sermon series called One Life. And at the end of that series, hundreds, literally hundreds of folks here in our church made a commitment to embrace the One Life initiative. Uh, Some of you already identified your One Life, and some of you made a commitment that you would pray that God would help you identify your one life. I want to give you a strong encouragement today to be faithful to that commitment. Hopefully, you've already done this. You're already involved in the process of spiritual influence with somebody. You're developing a friendship. You're discovering their story. You're discerning next steps. If you haven't identified your one life yet, then as gently as possible, here's what I have to say to you. Why? It's been almost six months since we concluded that one life series What's the holdup? What's causing you to be stuck in neutral? We, we have a great church here at Mount Pleasant. We do so many things really, really well. But if we're not reaching people who are a long way from God, then all we are at the end of the day is we're just a bunch of spiritual consumers. And listen, friends, that's the exact opposite of the kind of life that God has called us to, that Christ calls us to. He, he didn't call us to a life where we're concerned about what we get. He calls us to a life where we give our lives away. And when we talk about spiritual influence, we're talking about a willingness to give our lives away for the sake of making an eternal impact on somebody who right now is a long way from God, who if their life ended today would spend all eternity a long way from God. And so this is a serious thing. You know, there are somewhere around 350,000 churches, Protestant churches in the United States. It's a hard number to identify because there are churches that close every year and the number of church plants every year don't equal the number of churches that close every year, and it's hard to get this, it's a kind of a static number, so it's hard to get an exact number, but I think that's pretty accurate. About 350,000 Protestant churches in the United States today, but only 7% of those 350,000 churches are what you could honestly, genuinely call reproducing and multiplying churches, which means that less than 10% of all the Protestant churches in America today are making any kind of impact when it comes to reaching people who are lost, people who are a long way from God. That's a frightening number when you consider the direction of our modern culture. And just in case you've had your head buried in the sand, the direction of our modern culture is not toward God, it's away from God, more and more with every passing day, more and more with every passing day. And Spiritual influence, which is really, honestly, at the end of the day, just another way to describe personal evangelism. Spiritual influence, that's not something that's going to happen today in some kind of a program that the church creates. It's going to happen when ordinary 
people like you and me, ordinary believers like you and me, are willing to invest some time in developing a friendship with somebody who's a long way from God so we can discover their story and then let God lead us on how we might share spiritual influence with them, how we might point them to Jesus. And so I want to really encourage you with that one life commitment. Listen, if you've not gone through the one life training, and honestly, Maybe some of us need to go through the One Life training again. There's an opportunity coming up on April the 7th. That's a Sunday morning. It's here at the church. It starts at 8.45 and goes to 11.15. So it's not just a 45-minute commitment out of your day. It's, it's the morning, 8.45 to 11.15 on Sunday morning, April the 7th. You can register online. But here's the deal. If you're stuck in neutral somehow in your One Life commitment, then step outside of yourself and make some, get some traction going. I love this quote from Rick Warren. He said, your greatest victories are waiting on the other side of your fears. I know that there's a lot of fear involved in personal evangelism, but listen, we've presented you with an option or an opportunity related to personal evangelism that is as simple as it can possibly be, just a willingness on your part to develop a friendship with somebody who is a long way from God discovering their story, and then really praying that God would lead you into the next step. So I want to really encourage you about that this morning. In fact, I want to pray about that with all of us this morning. Let's just bow together real quickly. Father in heaven, I love you, and I thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. We had a great worship uh, time at 845 this morning, a great one last night at 6 o'clock. I look forward to what you're doing in this service today. But right now, I just want to pause and pray that you would put a conviction on all of our hearts a passion in all of our lives to make sure that we are doing what you have called us to do and sharing our faith, reaching people who are a long way from you, that has to be at the heartbeat of who we are as Christians. That's, that's clear from the Scriptures, from the teaching of the Bible. And so, help us, Father, help us in the name of Christ to move forward in that and be a church that multiplies and reproduces spiritual lives for all eternity. We pray that in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. All right. Hey, Matthew chapter 19, we're working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus, and we've been doing this since November of 2016. To make it uh, a little easier, I divided the gospel of Matthew up into different sections. We're in a section right now that's Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20, and I'm calling that section Growing Deeper because in those three chapters, what we see is Jesus in a variety of different ways showing His disciples, teaching His disciples, and in so doing, teaching us what it looks like to grow grow deeper in our faith and deeper in our calling. And we're going to see that this morning in what I know is surely a familiar, at least on some level, a familiar story to many of us. It's the story of the rich young ruler, um, the story of the rich young man. That's the way it's presented in more modern versions of the Bible. I can tell you as someone who has been in church virtually my entire life, literally, my entire life from the time I was a baby in the nursery until today, I'm very familiar with this story. I'm very familiar with this. I've known it, I feel like I've known it my entire life. And I can also tell you that the older I get, the more relevant and the more important this story becomes because here's what I've seen. Over the years, the church oftentimes in a desire to attract more people has fallen into the trap of abandoning or at the very least not talking about a significant part of the clear and the compelling call of Jesus. And what I mean by that is during His time in this world, Jesus made it clear that He expected His followers to take their 
commitment to him seriously because he wasn't interested in just attracting new members to some kind of a spiritual club. He was looking for radically committed disciples. That's what Jesus was looking for. I've told you this before, and I'll I'll mention it again. I, I don't know about you, but I feel a constant tension in my life between what I read in the Scriptures about what it means or what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and what I really experience or what I live out in my day in and day out life. And I can't believe I'm the only one here who would say that this morning. How can you not feel that tension when you study, for example, when you study the Gospel of Matthew and you come across passages like Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. We've already covered that, but this is what Jesus said. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. How can you not look at those words, then look at your life and not feel some kind of tension because there's a gap between what Jesus calls for and what we actually experience. Jesus is saying in those words that following Him means dying to yourself. And so as Christians, we have to routinely ask ourselves, am I so absolutely and completely committed to Jesus that I'm willing to forsake every other thing in my life for a willingness, if necessary, to die for Him? If you've been here for any length of time, You've heard me talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer as an illustration of complete commitment. He was a German theologian who was trying to follow Christ in the midst of the Nazi regime, probably best known for writing one of the greatest Christian books of the 20th century. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. Maybe you've read it. In that book, he wrote these words. He wrote that the first call of every Christian, and you should write this down somewhere, is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. The first call of every Christian is to abandon the attachments of the world because, as he goes on to write, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The first call of every Christian is to abandon the attachments of the world because when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know what that is? That's just his paraphrase of Those words we read just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Now, how can you read and acknowledge those words and not feel a certain level of tension between what the Bible says you need to do to be a follower of Christ and the reality of how you actually live? Let me give you another example. It's another place where I feel tension. I'm deeply committed in my life to being a good steward of all the resources that God entrusts to me. I've taught you about that over the years, many, many times. And when it comes to the financial resources that God has entrusted us, I've taught you that you can't follow a better plan than the fourfold plan you find in the book of Proverbs. Here's how you should manage God's money. You should keep track, you should plan ahead, you should save consistently, and you should give habitually. I've taught you that over and over again. I hope some of you have that written down somewhere in your Bible. I believe in that. I practice that in my life. In fact, there's not a week that goes by, not one single week that goes by that I don't check the balances in every account that I have, whether it's a bank account, checking, savings, whatever, or an investment account. I'm kind of obsessive about it. And honestly, I'm so obsessive about it that at any given moment, I could probably tell you within $1,000 what the total amount of all those accounts is altogether. Within $1,000. Now, I can tell you that that's just a part of me trying to be a good steward. 
That's just my commitment to being a good steward. The first two rules of being a good steward are to uh, keep track and plan ahead. Proverbs 13, 16 says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge. That's keeping track. Proverbs 21, 5 says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. That's planning ahead. But if I were to be honest, I would have to say, you know what? There's really more to it than just trying to be a good steward. And so, at some point in my life, when, for example, I study the Gospel of Matthew, I start to feel that tension again because I'll read words like this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or when I get to worried about the physical provisions for life and what's, what, if I'm going to have, my family's going to have the physical provisions for life down the road, then I read Matthew 6.33 where Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things, they'll be added to you as well. I feel that tension. I could give you more examples, but I'm going to stop right there. You can't read the words of Jesus in the Gospels and then look at the reality of your life and not feel some level of tension, not if you're honest. And if you don't feel that level of tension, then maybe you've got a greater thing to be concerned about. Jesus never made it easy to follow him because he's clear in teaching that following him requires absolute commitment we see that clearly in this familiar story. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's just dive into it. Stand together with me like we always do for the reading of the Scripture. As I mentioned, we're in Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? That be my question. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, as at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. There are lots of different lessons that we can learn from this story, but we're going to look at it simply from the perspective of what it looks like to live with complete devotion to Christ. If you like to take notes, write down next to number one. The first thing you have to do is you have to embrace the real Jesus. That's number one. You have to embrace the real Jesus. In verses 16 and 17, we see the man coming up to the teacher. His question was, what, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. That's how the story goes in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to step out of Matthew chapter 19 for a moment and reference the way it reads in Mark chapter 10. Don't turn there. Just keep your Bible 
in Matthew chapter 19. But in Mark chapter 10, we get a little bit of a different version of the story. Mark says that the man runs up to Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, good teacher. Everyone say good teacher. Good teacher. That's how he addresses Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then in Mark chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's just think about Mark's account for a moment here as we think about what it means to embrace the real Jesus. Jesus' reply to the man after he calls him good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, seems a little confusing because it sounds almost like Jesus is saying he's not good. But that would contradict every single thing the Bible says about Jesus because he is good. Somebody say amen to that. And we sang about the goodness of God this morning, didn't we? And Jesus was no ordinary man. He was God in human flesh. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, when he says there is no one good except God, he is saying to this man, there is no one who is genuinely good. Or in other words, think of it like this. He's saying there is no one who is intrinsically good from the inside out just by nature, by character, by being, there is no one who is intrinsically good except God alone. And in saying that, what Jesus is doing is he's challenging this rich man to think through the implication of what he is saying when he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Let me put it in really simple language. What he's saying to this rich man when he calls him good teacher is, don't call me good unless you're willing to call me God. That's what he's saying. And so when I say that the first thing we need to do is embrace the real Jesus, we've just got to acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, God and the bottom line is you will never live a life of complete devotion to Jesus until you're willing to confront that truth about him. He's not just a unique rabbi. He's not just a really good teacher. He's not someone coming along offering a new alternative to a spiritual life. He is God in human flesh. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. That's who he is. And so when you confront the truth that Jesus is God, you've got a decision to make. And that decision is, am I going to surrender to him completely or am I going to reject him? Because according to the Bible, those are the only two choices. Even though in the modern day church today, we often make the mistake of thinking there's a third choice that involves embracing Jesus but not surrendering to him, accepting Jesus but not submitting to him. But Jesus never even hints at that as an option, not in the Bible. It's not found with him, it's all or nothing, which brings up a significant question. And the question is, is it possible to think that you're a Christian when you're not? And at the answer of you thinking that I'm judgmental, I'm going to give you my answer. Absolutely it is. It's absolutely possible to think that you're a Christian when you're not. In fact, let me give you one of the clearest truths of the Scripture. You should write this down somewhere. Salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. Salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. Now, I don't want you to take my words out of context. I'm not saying that salvation is based on works. I understand that it's not. I understand my Bible 
completely and clearly. I understand that we're saved by God's grace. I understand Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and I embrace that Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works that no, so that no one can boast. We're saved by God's grace through faith. Everybody say that's right. Okay, a few of us think that's true. But it's also clear in the Scriptures that our obedience to God, which is to say our obedience to the will of God and the Word of God is the fruit or the proof of our salvation. And so if you think that your life is right with God and you show in your life absolutely no interest in submitting to or obeying His will for your life, then you're not just sadly mistaken, you're tragically mistaken. Look at these words on the screen from Jesus. We covered these earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, by the way, shows you that I'm not judgmental. I'm just repeating the words of Jesus when I say it's possible to think that you're a Christian when you're not. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who, note this, does the will of my Father in heaven. There's a parallel verse in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus makes it real clear. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And in asking that question, Jesus is saying, see, those two are not in sync. They're, they're, they're counter to each other. You can't call me Lord and then not do what I say. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. When Jesus says, follow me, he means follow me completely. Follow me completely. Think of it like this. Sandy and I... We just celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary, and we got away for a few days. Matt Pineda filled the pulpit for me, did a great job while I was gone. I I still remember when I first saw Sandy. I still remember when I first met her. I remember where it was. I remember what she was wearing. I remember every single thing about it. I do. And God has blessed us with 37 wonderful years of being married. But what what would you think of me... If 37 years ago I had said something like this to Sandy, honey, I love you and I want to marry you. I will provide for you. I'll take care of you. I'll be a good husband to you. I'll be a good father to our children. All I ask is that you give me a little room on the side to pursue some personal desires. Give me just a few days a year for other women. What do you think she would have said? What would you think of her if she would have said, okay? It's wrong for us to think that we can follow Jesus, who, remember, is God, and not be 100% committed to Him and His will alone. And so to live a life of complete devotion to Christ, you absolutely have to confront the truth about Jesus. Either He is the absolute and complete Lord of your life, and everything else is a distant second, or you have no part of Him because He does not offer part-time discipleship. Write down next to number two. The second thing, if you are going to live a life of complete devotion to Christ, is you've got to get real about lesser loves. You've got to get real about lesser loves. We'll go back to Matthew's account in verse 19, or in chapter 19, verse 16, 17. What, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? And then he says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? And Jesus gives a reply. It's not an exhaustive list. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these, the man said, all these I have kept. In another version or another uh, gospel, he says, since I was young. I mean, this guy sounds perfect, doesn't he? 
This is a guy who's going to be at the top of the prospect list in the local church. Everything about him is good. He's got money. Everything about him is good. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In verse 22, the saddest part of this story, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. What was it that stood between this rich man and God? Well, it's a simple answer in the story. It was money. And, and to make sure we're clear, Jesus wasn't saying that the problem was having money. Having money is not a problem. Jesus, remember who is God, looked at this man, looked into his life, saw every part of his life, looked deep into his heart, and saw that he loved money, and money had a hold of him. That was the problem. Having money isn't a problem. Loving money is a problem. That's why Paul wrote later in 1 Timothy that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And because he loved money, Jesus, who was God, could see that that money was always going to be a distraction to him, that money was always going to get in the way of complete commitment to Christ. His default mode was always going to be to hang on to his money, not hang on to Jesus. Maybe it's the same for you. You love money. Maybe it's the same. Maybe I love money. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's... any number of personal pursuits that we have in our lives in this world, personal affections and personal hobbies or personal pursuits. But regardless of what it is, you need to decide where that stands on the commitment scale. And if it's something that needs to be confronted, if it's something that needs to be eliminated, that's what needs to be done because it can't get in the way of your commitment to Jesus. This is a requirement. And there's two things about this requirement that we need to understand. First of all, this requirement comes from love. Why do I say that? Well, again, if you, if you step out of Matthew and you go to the Gospel of Mark and you see this story in Mark's account, he says something that Matthew doesn't record. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, and this was right after Jesus said, uh, keep all the com- uh, follow the commandments, he lists the commandments, and the guy said, I followed all those commandments. Mark, at that point, Mark 10, 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, all these commandments I've followed since I was a boy. And then Mark writes, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus, who was God, looked into his heart, saw the reality of every part of his life, and loved him. And so what that means is Jesus was saying to this man, ultimately, I love you too much to allow you to be just casually religious because that's empty and meaningless. I love you too much to have an empty and meaningless life. I love you too much to let you think that you can be anything less than completely committed to me. Second thing about this requirement is it's non-negotiable. And I say that Basically, because in Matthew 19, 22, we read those words, when the young man heard this, Jesus said, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And you know what happened next? You know what happened next? Nothing. In other words, Jesus let him walk away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having that, a personal 
a, a encounter, an appointment with somebody to talk about spiritual things. You lay it all out. You're clear. You're compelling about it. And they say, no thanks. And you say, okay, good luck. Jesus let him walk away because there's no negotiation in this. There's no negotiation. Jesus tells the man the conditions required for eternal life, which is complete commitment. It's faith. We're saved by faith, but Jesus is talking to me about complete commitment. You can't have other affections that take a higher priority in your life than me. And the rich man couldn't agree to those conditions. He couldn't give up his attachment to his wealth. And so that was the end of it. You know, I've been on mission trips around the world, and probably you have too. There's always that time when the missionary takes you to some market, and you can buy some souvenirs, and they say, now haggle, okay? First price isn't the final price. And so, man, I, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of competitive. I'm not, I jump right into that deal. I feel so guilty later because I realized I bought something for 25 cents instead of 50 cents. That's what it amounted to in American money. But you know, you, you're haggling, how much this guy, they say about how much, and you say, I'll give you this much. They say, no, and at some point you start to walk away, and that's when you set the hook, right? Because then they come after you and say, okay, I'll give it to you for your price. That's not the way it is with our faith. Well, well let's, let's make this more than just a story about somebody else for a moment. I, I want... I want all of us to think about that one thing in our life that we really love. I mean, it could be a thing, or it could be an activity, a pursuit of some kind. I mean, if, 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 you're, if somebody asked you, uh, did an interview to try to learn about who you are, and they say, what do you love to do? And you, this is, you didn't even have to think twice about it. You, you gave the answer. Now imagine yourself in the same position as this rich man, and Jesus looks at you and he sees that, that you have such a love for that thing, whatever it might be, that it's always going to be a distraction to you. It could end up being your default mode, the thing that you choose above everything else. And so he says the same thing to you that he says to this rich man, you need to give it up, you need to give it away, whatever, and then come follow him. Here's the question, what would you do? Honestly. What would I do? What would you do? I'm not talking about, you know, giving up your husband or your wife or your children. I'm talking about some earthly, worldly, temporal thing. What would you do? You know, I've always believed that the, the surest sign of how much we love someone or love something is how much we're willing to give away for that person or that thing, how much we're willing to sacrifice for it. And maybe that was a little bit of Jesus' thought process here with the rich young man. I have a friend named Mark who I met when I was a pastor in Oklahoma. He and his wife, Jennifer, became good friends of Sandy and mine. And they had a, a little girl named Ashley, and they had a little boy named Brock. And Ashley was a twin, and uh, her sister's name was Kristen. Kristen never came home from the hospital. Both were born with severe handicaps. Ashley had cerebral palsy. She's the sweetest, funniest girl uh, that uh, I've ever met. I loved her deeply, still do. But Kristen didn't survive, and she didn't make it home. One night, Mark and I were going to a basketball game. We were driving from Tulsa to Stillwater, Oklahoma, to Oklahoma State to watch a basketball game. 
and he got to talking to me in the car about things that were going on in his life, and he said that lately he'd been having dreams. And in his dream, his daughter Kristen, who never made it home from the hospital, was calling to him. She was somewhere, like in another state or another country, like she was lost, like she was away, and she was calling to him as her dad to come and get her and to bring her home. Big tears rolling down his cheeks as he was telling me this story. And then in the emotion of the moment, he said to me, he said, I, I, when, the, when the girls were born, I prayed, I prayed deeply to God constantly that he would allow Kristen to come home from the hospital. And he said, I prayed and said, God, I, if you let Kristen come home from the hospital, he doesn't pray for her to be healed, just for her to come home. He said, if you let Kristen come home from the hospital, I'll give up golf. I'll never play golf again. Now, somebody might hear that story and they think, golf? What's golf? Golf is no big deal. Well, what is it in your life? Because I can pretty much guarantee you, if it's something that's just a part of this temporal world, in the scheme of eternity, it's no big deal. No matter how much you love it or how it makes you feel. What is it in your life? And if Jesus looked at you and he said, listen, it's not that that's a bad thing, but the hold that it has on you is always going to get in between you and me, and so you need to give it up, what would you do? There are things in this world that become more important, practically speaking, if we're honest practically speaking, become more important to us than our pursuit of Christ and the life that he calls us to. And that does not fit the gospel message, friends. And that means I start to feel some tension in my life because I realize my life is out of balance sometimes. Well, I'm about out of time, so just real quickly write down next to number three. The third thing we have to do if we want to really live a life of complete devotion is we've just got to accept God's grace. This is such good news. After the man walked away, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, you know, because Jesus is God. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking. The next verse, they say what they're thinking. Who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? But Jesus, he knows that. And so he says, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you know what people try to explain that statement away, but let me tell you something. This is just hyperbole. Jesus means exactly what he says. It's hard. And so how can any of us be saved? By the grace of God, not based on our own works or anything that we could do on our own, but completely on the great, by the grace of God. Here's an old story, and we'll bring this to a close. Brian can come out. An old story about a man who dies and he goes to heaven. He gets to the proverbial pearly gates, and I don't know why, but Peter in all these stories is the spokesperson, the, the representative at the pearly gates. And Peter says, well, your life is going to be reviewed. This isn't good theology, by the way, at the first, so at the beginning, so stay with me. Peter says, your life is going to be reviewed, and your good deeds will be added up. You need 1,000 points to get into heaven. The man says, no problem, no problem. I taught Sunday school every Sunday for 40 years. Peter said, okay, that's worth one point. <laughs> well, the man was a little surprised, and he said, well, I've been a faithful and loving husband as well as a dedicated, nurturing father. 
Peter said, okay, that's worth one point. The man was becoming a little concerned. He said, I tithe my income faithfully all my life. Peter said, that's one point. The man's really worried now. He said, I was an elder in my church. Peter said, that's worth half a point. I don't know what that says about being an elder in the local church. The man goes through an entire list of every good thing he's ever done. He has 12 points. And so in his exasperation, he says, I give up. The only way a guy could get in here is by the grace of God. And Peter says, that's worth a thousand points. No one, no one, regardless of how good we are, how many good things we do, can ever earn or deserve salvation, the eternal life that that rich young man was seeking on our own. It comes to us as the grace of God, and it's a gift, listen to me, friends, so precious that we should be willing to give up anything and everything that might somehow stand between us and the complete surrender of faith that Jesus calls for. Well, I wish I had time to talk to you about those final verses there. Go back and read them on your own. They just remind us of the desperate need that we have for God's grace, and they remind us of this, and this is how we'll close. Whatever you have to give up in this world as a result of following Christ, He will repay to you in an incomprehensible way, repay to you in an unimaginable way one day in the world that is to come. And so as we live, we live with our eyes on eternity.